School is back in session. Youngsters are already back, and college students at Oregon's public universities return in coming days. Where do things stand with, you know, everything? I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. Up next, Sammy Edge, higher education reporter for The Oregonian and Oregon Live. First off, we talked about those younger kids and what we know and don't know about just how far behind they are in achieving key reading and math-related milestones. Then, we talked about the many changes in higher education, why community colleges are struggling, and how the state is trying to open doors to tribal members. Here's our conversation. Sammy Edge, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, I'm excited to be here and excited to be at the Oregonian. We are very excited to have you and we've been enjoying reading your stuff so far. Um, A lot to dive into. The youngsters, primary school kids, are back in classrooms across Oregon now and college students return to public universities later this month. Before we talk about that stuff, higher ed, your beats, uh, you pinch hit and wrote about a very important story that we're just kind of starting to understand as a society, and that's learning loss due to the pandemic. Could you tell us about Haley Floyd and her daughter and their story? Yeah. So so Haley Floyd is a parent in the David Douglas School District in, uh, I think that's in Northeast Portland. I'm still getting oriented around here. And her story was pretty emotional. You know, she's she's the parent of a kid who has just started in the fourth grade. And something that we hear frequently as education reporters is how critical the third grade age is for reading. Mm-hmm. You know, before that, students are learning to read. And then after third grade, they're expected to be reading to learn. So getting those reading skills up to par around third grade is really important. And last year, when Haley's daughter was in the third grade, she realized that that her kiddo was still struggling with some sight words um, that she was supposed to have learned in first grade. So she was she was really quite concerned that her daughter was behind, uh, you know, tapped into her savings account to pay for a reading tutor this summer, um, and was really just hoping that when her when her kiddo went back to school this year and started fourth grade, the teacher could kind of assess where she was at and see that that hopefully she had made some progress. Okay, so I think a lot of people can probably identify with uh, Haley Floyd's story and her daughter, right? I mean, she's working. It's hard to help your kids when you're working full time and trying to pay the bills, right? I mean, her story is is one that's kind of emblematic about um, the broader picture in Oregon, right? Certainly. Um, you know, yeah, that was something I didn't mention was Haley was, was working during the pandemic. So even when her daughter was at home, she was trying to help her, trying to help her with school, trying to focus on her job. That's a struggle, right? <laughs> Their story is emblematic of where we are because there's been a lot of concern around learning loss, but we don't quite have the data yet to know exactly where we are in Oregon. So just as, as Haley was, you know, hoping as she goes back to school this fall, her daughter's teacher will give her a sense Uh, for where they are, you know, we're waiting this fall to get a sense for where Oregon students are in general. Yeah, that's one of those unsatisfying things in journalism or life where it's like, we don't know. (laughs) We know there's an issue, but we have to wait for uh, the experts and, you know, the actual data to to come through and and show the extent of, of the problem. Sure. We have some national data that shows that that pandemic learning loss has been a real issue. 
uh, you know, particularly for some priority populations who were already disproportionately disadvantaged in school. But I think maybe next week we'll get some some state data on how far Oregon's kids may have been set back by the pandemic and how much they may have managed to catch up, you know, since that that first year of remote learning. So how are districts and nonprofits who help students in the school system trying to help kids catch up? Yeah, well, I think the biggest thing I can point to right now is uh, lots of summer school. <laughs> that that was a big big deal for kids this past year, in particular this past summer. The Beaverton School District told me that they had pretty much tripled enrollment in summer school, and uh, I think seventeen percent of their students were were in summer school this past summer. So wow, that's a big amount. Well. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge when you expect students to make a year's worth of progress during the school year, right? But now if they have more than a year's worth of progress to make up, either the school year has to be extra intensive or they need some extra time to do that. You mentioned a little bit earlier talking about sight words like um, friends, you know, a word that a sight word, basically, you know, a kid might not know how to read, but they need to recognize that word when they see it. And, um, um, you know, that's kind of one of the building blocks. My understanding as someone who has a kindergartner um, trying to figure out all this stuff. But um, what other skills are kids kind of falling behind expectations now from what you've heard uh, just on your reporting? Well, you know, what we know at this point based on national research, is that students lost ground in both math and reading during the pandemic, and that low-income youth and historically marginalized students were impacted the most. Nationally, reading scores among nine-year-olds, which is, you know, that that critical third to fourth grade age group, saw the steepest drop in 30 years during the pandemic. Hmm. The test that revealed those those nine-year-old drops also showed that math scores dropped the, for the first time in that in that time period. It's a it's a lot. It's a lot to make up. And, and uh, we're all st- still trying to grapple, I think, with, you know, what we have all been through as adults in the past two years, um, let alone, you know, children. It's it's uh, it's got to be a very bizarre time. Yeah. And, and, you know, national studies do suggest that that student learning kind of rebounded during the 21, 22 school year when students were back in buildings. Um, you know, there were pandemic protocols, but they weren't weren't always at home. I spoke with some folks at nonprofits who told me that they have recognized that the very youngest students seem to be catching up fastest, um, mm. just kind of encouraging because that, that population, I think researchers were really worried about. So it does seem to look like the youngest students are catching up faster maybe than, their, than the older students. Well, let's turn to higher education and those students who are exiting the primary school system and heading on to post-secondary education. Um, it's a new era, and there's a lot of new beginnings and new leaders um, in the in the state uh, that you've been writing about in, the, in recent weeks and, and months. Um, can you kind of talk about some of the changes that have happened? And is this just one of those times where you know there's not something else going on other than there's just rotating chairs at, at the top positions? <laughs> well, there's lots going on and rotating chairs, uh, so it's an exciting time to step into this higher education beat. Um, yeah, we have a new president at Oregon State. We have a new president at Portland Community College. Um, I know that there are several others that I have not yet covered. Lane Community College has a new president. Um, and we just found out recently that the University of Oregon is going to be hiring a new president after uh, Michael Schill went to, to be the new president of Northwestern in Illinois. 
Um, so there's a lot of change coming there. And uh, also, you know, we're, we're seeing higher education institutions have to, to navigate a new normal after the pandemic, just like just like our K-12 schools. From what I can see, the, the impact of the pandemic has been um, acutely felt at uh, community colleges in particular. Um, they've seen really steep enrollment declines and are trying to figure out how to chart a path forward without a lot of the enrollment that, that kind of makes up their baseline funding. You know, I have a little bit of knowledge from writing about higher ed previously, and it's basically like community college enrollment tends to track with the economy, right? Is that um, is that one of the reasons, you know, in terms of um, the, the unemployment is extremely low right now? Is that one of the reasons that, um, that community college is seeing enrollment decline or are there other factors going on? Yeah, I think that's certainly one of the reasons that they're they're seeing enrollment decline right now. But but also the pandemic kind of threw a wrench in all of their traditional models for expecting what enrollment could do. Because right at the beginning of the pandemic, we saw a little bit of a recession, right? It was pretty right. short-lived. But historically, that would <laughs> suggest that students were going to enroll in colleges because that's what we've seen in the past. And uh, instead of that happening you know, enrollment just really plummeted. Perhaps that's because schools were, were moving online and, and people weren't as interested in, in going back to school during a recession if they had to do it online. Hmm. So we saw st- steep drops there. And then the job market got <laughs> competitive. So we really have, have yet to see kind of a, a return to normal enrollment. And also, we've been seeing enrollment declines broadly over the last decade or so since the, the Great Recession. So you know, it really is a new era in terms of low enrollment at community colleges and, and what the plan is moving forward to either appeal to more students or restructure that landscape so that it is economical and making the most sense to meet the state's needs. Yeah, you've done some really interesting reporting in recent weeks on on the community college and, and both the enrollment piece that you just talked about, but also kind of the various levers that the state is trying to pull to uh, make it more enticing. And can you talk a little bit about some of the financial aid work that um, that the state is trying to uh, take part in, I guess, or encourage to draw more people to community colleges because you know the the Oregon promise some listeners might have a little bit of a knowledge about but um, it seems like there's more effort to to try to get more bodies in classrooms so to speak it's been kind of exciting I think to see that financial aid is a big talking point um, Oregon for a long time was kind of at the bottom of the pack in terms of financial aid allocations to students um, it has made some progress. I don't think we're we're on the very lowest end of, of state financial aid, but we are still um, below the national average, which I believe in 2021, most states gave around $920 in financial aid to most full-time students, and Oregon's funding level was closer to $600. Um, so we're, we're definitely below the norm. The Higher Education Coordinating Commission, which is essentially the state governance body for higher ed, right? They're really focused on that funding piece this year. They just released a budget request that would basically quadruple state funding for student aid and kind of take Oregon from a marginal state to to one of the best in the country for, for per student funding. 
on that financial aid front. That is very much in the early stages. <laughs> you know, right. we'll, we'll get we'll get a new governor this fall, and and she'll have to review that budget request before it even goes to the legislature. So, uh, it's a long shot that we get that much more funding, but I suppose we'll see. Um, in the meantime, the state has you know made some moves to make financial aid and and higher education more accessible. You mentioned Oregon Promise. That is the state grant that ostensibly makes community college free for students. Um, it does have some barriers to entry. You have to meet a certain GPA requirement. It's only for high schoolers who who very immediately enroll in high, in uh, community colleges the fall after they graduate. But this year, the legislature reduced that GPA requirement from 2.5, which is, I think, a C average, mm-hmm. to 2.0. So, you know, we could see far more students um, qualifying for that aid this year. Uh, and research has shown that, that that could be a particular benefit to students of color and low-income students who are, you know, generally uh, generally have less, less opportunities to pursue higher education. There's so many unanswered questions, but I, I loved how you uh, you said we will have a governor and and she will play a role. Obviously, <laughs> that's one of the only things we know. Uh, the next governor will be a woman. Um, just sticking with the uh, the state funding piece, you you've reported um, this is going back quite a quite a ways, but it's important story. Just about how the state is trying to make. Um, uh, inroads to uh, tribal members uh, to to mm-hmm. open higher education doors there. Can you talk about some of the stories that you had on that front, and and maybe some of the people you talked to, and and how they might be taking advantage of that program? Yeah, this year um, the legislature I think put nineteen million into the Oregon Tribal Student Grant, um, and it's pretty unique in the country, from what I could tell from my reporting. Um, basically. A member of of any of Oregon's tribes um, can can access this fund these funds to pay for most of their higher education, um, and the grants kind of pay average cost at a school, which um, is much different than just covering tuition. Uh, average cost also includes books and housing and that kind of stuff. So it it really could help pay for for the majority of folks, higher education um, costs this next year. And it's not just for tribal high school students. It's for anybody who's an enrolled member of a tribe and wants to go pursue higher education if they want to finish a degree they started or um, maybe they they never got the chance to do higher ed and and want to try it for the first time, they can access these funds. Like I said, I, I didn't see another state that was offering this this level of funding for tribal members. Uh, there are some states that, that offer free tuition for tribal members, but that's, you know, only a chunk of the higher ed cost broadly. Yeah. And as you reported, there's something like more than 29,000 members of federally recognized tribes uh, uh, who live in Oregon and, and might qualify for, you know, for this, this program. Yeah. And uh, I know that the application is still open. So, the state certainly hasn't run out of money yet. So if anybody's listening and they, they haven't yet had the opportunity to, to put in their application, I'd say go for it. I'm curious uh, what it's been like for you, Sammy, um, kind of covering this beats when it's, you know, this weird time. And now we're kind of finally feeling more like a 
a sense of normalcy, I guess. And <laughs> um, students um, obviously have been back on campuses for a while, but like, what's it been like for you trying to wrap your head around this and uh, as a reporter and and um, just planning out your reporting um, as as the school year begins in earnest? Yeah, well, um, it's a newbie for me. I was a K-12 reporter before, so that was helpful for laying some of the groundwork. Um, and well, I just, I just moved back to the state. I did attend the University of Oregon um, a while back. So at least I've got some, <laughs> some, you know, ground level knowledge on that front. It's been fun, but also somewhat challenging to figure out where these institutions are after the pandemic. I think we're really seeing a mixed bag. Um, my understanding is that enrollment at the flagships this year is not not hurting anywhere near the same way that community colleges are. It's been interesting to try and map out the landscape and, and figure out the unique identity of, you know, more than 20 different institutions <laughs> across the state. <laughs> With a ton of, uh, like we mentioned at the top, a ton of leadership changes too um, at so many schools. Certainly. I mean, it's um, one of the pieces that you um, reported recently uh, includes another school that has a leadership change at the top, and that's uh, a private institution, uh, University of Portland in uh, up on the bluff in, in North Portland. Um, but can you kind of describe that piece? Because it, it was really fascinating to me um, that um, the school is like in the hole because a lot of kids have uh who said they were going to come aren't coming right can you kind of um describe what exactly is happening at up certainly um and, and i'll preface this for for listeners that you know my beat is is mostly access and equity in higher ed and and mostly community colleges so don't okay. expect a lot from me on this this <laughs> private university front there are just too many schools to keep track of um but i did think that this was an interesting and kind of important story at up um you know it the school expected to have um i think almost record enrollment in its freshman class this year um and generally it sees some students drop off over the summer right students who said they were going to come in the fall they send out bills in the summer mm -hmm. students decide it's too expensive and, and withdraw um my understanding is that's usually about seven percent this year they saw three times that so about 21 percent of students who put money down backed out wow um and they ended up with with one of their their smallest freshman classes in a while um leadership isn't isn't exactly sure why yet they don't um they won't until later this fall have an understanding of whether those students went elsewhere or didn't enroll anywhere. And it took them by surprise because, you know, it looked like it was going to be a turnaround year after some lower than average class sizes during the pandemic. And then so many students backed out that they, you know, they got hit with this uh, surprise deficit. I want to say it was about 8.9 million. They're about 8.9 million behind where they expected to be this fall. Yeah, I would be surprised too. And that that seems like uh that seems like that would catch you off guard. Well, I mean there's just so much um it's such an interesting time uh for you to be on this beat like you you mentioned the kind of the lens that you're looking um at your stories and I'm just curious um you, you know obviously President Biden took action um uh, a couple weeks ago now at this point, I don't know what is time something like that uh mm -hmm. to um 
you know, uh, canceled debt for a lot of people and um, in, with various criteria, but uh, Pell Grant recipients were um, going to receive more forgiveness. Have you had any conversations with anyone locally about that and how it's changed their financial situation? Or do you have any thoughts on how it might just affect all the things we talked about previously in terms of enrollment going forward? Yeah, I will say I haven't done too much on on loan forgiveness personally, um, but I can imagine, you know, mostly for obviously this is this is a boon for graduates who who come out of of programs with a lot of debt and are trying to pay that off. Um, I mean, I I can only imagine that it's huge, right? We're we're all dealing right now with the with escalated inflation, um, and then having loan debt on top of rent and a car payments and insurance payments is right. just so much to deal with. Um, so I think it's it's a weight off of many, many people's shoulders. What else should I have asked you, Sammy, about your reporting and just kind of um, the stories that you've told recently or looking to tell? I, I, there's so much to talk about. I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah. Uh, well, in the next couple of weeks, I'll be working on a, a back to school story for higher ed, um, really focused on you know, how has the pandemic impacted student preparedness for college, particularly for students who were in high school during the pandemic and, and lived through some of those disruptions? Um, I've been talking to some some universities about that. Um, I also just wrote a story today. We're talking on Friday, September 16th <laughs> right. ab- about um, the way that community colleges are, are kind of getting involved in um, expungement efforts to help folks who were convicted of crimes in the past, but eligible to have those crimes wiped off their record, uh, you know, get that paperwork done and get that process taken care of. Um, and that was really, that was a really interesting story for me because I hadn't yet thought about that role of community colleges in really breaking down all sorts of barriers to people's, you know, education and also employment. Um, Having a criminal record can be a huge issue for employment and getting that paperwork done is scary and hard and used to be very costly. So it's been interesting to see that role of community colleges really, you know, taking on that that legal advice uh, in addition to everything else they do for Oregonians. Yeah. And thanks for bringing that up, because what I loved about that piece is um, the you know, the main anecdote you used was um, a man in his 60s, I believe, uh, Forrest uh, Beasley, who, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of emblematic that of these community colleges. They're not, it's not just an 18 to 22 year old, right? I mean, they serve the community. And um, can you talk about what his um, story was, if you got it in your brain somewhere? Oh, absolutely. I just spoke with Forrest recently, and he was delightful. Um, I will preface with, you know, Forrest is not um, he's, he's not a community college student, but, um, you know, community colleges are, are offering these, these services for, for people broadly. Right. Forrest is, yeah, in his mid sixties is a drug and alcohol counselor, I believe for, for a nonprofit in Lane County. Um, and he himself has, uh, 15 felonies on his record for, um, dealing drugs when he was younger, much younger. He got kicked out of the house as an adolescent and was living on the streets and got into addiction and, and began selling drugs and then went to prison and turned his whole life around. He's been sober for 33 years. 
when he first heard that there was a clinic in Oregon City where he could, um, you know, talk to some people who could help him get these off his record, you know, he thought it was a prank. <laughs> he, he, that's the anecdote at the beginning of the story was he wondered if it was like one of those bounty hunter shows where they convince you you've won a prize and then you show up and they arrest you. Um, and yeah, he said, if that's the case, just tell me and I'll turn myself in because I don't, I don't live that life anymore. And Forrest showed up and, and people helped him fill out the paperwork to get these things expunged from his record. And it was, it was really um, important for him, not because at this point in his life, he's facing any employment challenges or education challenges, which, which many people with criminal records are. Mm-hmm. But for him, you know, he's worked through the, the steps of, of AA. And one of those things is forgiveness, you know, going back and making amends to people you've wronged. And for him, this felt like it, he finally made amends with the state. He, he was, he can be free of these charges soon because he has worked hard to give back to his community and leave a, live a good life. Uh, and now this is kind of a weight off of him. Well, it was a great story. Uh, we'll share a link in the episode notes. And um, thanks for your work on that one and all the previous stuff we discussed. Um, it's been great to have your voice on the beat. And we look forward to chatting more soon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. I shared links to some of Sammy's recent stories in the episode notes, including her piece about community colleges helping residents expunge past convictions from their record. If you like this show, give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find the show. And tell a friend. Help spread the word. The best way to support our journalism is through a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time.